Would you pray with me? God, uh, you are a good God. You are the definition of goodness. And Lord, we need to be reminded of that because so often we find ourselves in situations that are not good. Find ourselves in situations where life does not go the direction that we wanted it to go. Relationships don't go the direction that we wanted them to go. When people disappoint us and hurt us and betray us and and things are just not good. Lord, sometimes it's things that happen outside of our control as we think about what's going on in Maui and all of the loss of life and the destruction of homes and property and lives turned upside down and the number of people that are going through uh, profound grief and, and just the fact that that is not good. That is not what you intended. That's not what you intended when you created this world. That is life this side of heaven. That is life in the midst of the brokenness of this world. But Lord, we cling to the fact that in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of that which is not good, you are good. And we cling to that. We lean into that. We trust in that, that you are a good God. Lord, be in our midst today as we break forth your word and are reminded again of the truth of your scripture and apply it to our hearts. Whatever you need to say to each one of us today, we pray that a miracle would take place. You would take one message, one thought process, one presentation, and that you would anoint it with your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts so that we each individually hear a word from you, a fresh word from you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Would you give the Lord a praise offering today? All right, you can have a seat. Uh, All right, I just got back uh, a few days ago. Uh, We were gone last weekend, and all, all of last week, actually, on our, our grandparent trip. Some of you know that when our, we have seven grandkids and that when uh, a grandchild uh, graduates fourth grade, so between their fourth grade and their fifth grade year, we go on an experience, just Donna and myself and that grandchild that they help to curate and just spend uh, usually seven or eight days with them, seven, eight, nine days. And uh, this year, uh, our trip was with Max, who is the fifth of our seven grandkids. And, uh, and we ended up going where a number of them have wanted to go, uh, and that's Disney World and Universal Studios. And I think we have a picture of Max uh, at uh, Universal Studios. And uh, Max is uh, the love of our life. We love this kid. We fell in love with this kid even more on this trip. He's standing in front of the, the, the Hulk roller coaster. And the reason I, I chose this picture is because that's all we did for seven days. That's all we did. Like other grandkids that we've taken down, they wanted to meet characters. They wanted to have their picture taken. They wanted to go out to eat. They wanted to do other fun stuff. They wanted to swim in the pool. They wanted to do these passive things that are just wonderful, wonderful to do. Not Max. Max was like, I just want to take on roller coasters. And it did not matter the size of the roller coaster, how, how scary the roller coaster was. We've taken 10-year-olds 
on all of these trips and know that some of them like, no, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that. Max was like dragging us on to every roller coaster. And we rode in the seven days a hundred different versions of roller coasters. We walked 70 miles with this young man. And I'm just thinking, at this stage of life, I should be at a beach somewhere with my feet up and a drink in my hand, a Diet Coke, and, uh, and just enjoying, you know. But no, like our kids love doing this stuff and, and I'm committed as long as they wanna ride roller coasters, I'm gonna ride roller coasters with them. And uh, so it was, it was fantastic. And, and, I, and I do have to say, there's something that I just, I know I say this every time, but it's so important. You guys, parents, grandparents out there, all of that. Um, there's something that happens. You know, if we got seven grandkids and we're with them all the time. They all are local and we have them over all the time and all that. But there's something that happens when you get a child away from all the other dynamics and it's just you and that child that changes your relationship forever. And, and I, 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 was, I was talking in the first service about, it's kind of like what happens with our relationship with God is like, you know, we have this daily connection with God and we pray and we read our Bible and we do all these things and we worship. Uh, but then sometimes we have this chance to go on this retreat, this getaway, this camp, whatever it is, something, something different and it changes our relationship with God Forever, And that's what happens. That's why we started doing this, because this changes our relationship. We, we fall in love with our grandkids all over again. We fell in love with Max all over again, just spending that time with him. And I'm just so stinking thankful and grateful that we get the opportunity uh, to do that. And, and it doesn't have to be Disney World. And it doesn't be Universal Studios. Just Find creative ways to get away and spend special time uh, with your kids and with your grandkids. All right, so we're in week two of this study in the book of James. And uh, so Josh did an amazing job last week launching this series, uh, walking us through chapter one of James, filled with so much. I told him and said, Josh, that was a masterful job of really unpacking that whole text and helping us to really understand the message of James in chapter one. And so uh, today we're going to deal with chapter two, but before we jump into chapter two, I want to set the context again. I know that Josh did a little bit this last week, but I know that not everyone's here every week, and so I want to set a little bit of the context again for this letter and the author of this letter. There's, there's quite a bit of evidence in the New Testament that the James that that wrote this book is the same James that was the brother of Jesus and the same James that was the brother of Jude who wrote the book of Jude. Uh, first of all, Jude 1 tells us that James and Jude were brothers, so we know that from Jude 1, that they were brothers. Secondly, on the basis of Mark 6, we know that the two of Jesus' four brothers were named James and Jude, Judas, Jude is short, for Judas. And thirdly, based on Acts 1, we know that Jesus' brothers became followers of Christ. They became Christians. So everything points to the authors of these two books being the brothers of Jesus, which would represent a huge transformation in both James and Jude's life. Because initially, 
they were troubled by their brother's ministry. <laughs> like they were troubled by what they saw Jesus doing, what they saw Jesus saying, what people were saying about Jesus, the claims that were like, they were like super troubled about, about all of that. John 7 uh, verse 5 flat, says that they flat out did not believe in him. You can't get any more straightforward than that. They did not, like we don't buy it. They did not believe in him. And that's probably why Jesus said in Mark 6 that a prophet is without honor among his own kin and in his own house. But over time, things changed. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that the resurrected Christ appeared to James. And it was a transformative moment in his life. In Acts 1, we're told that the Lord's brothers were among the 120 that were gathered in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and, and waiting for Pentecost to take place. That James' brothers were, were in that room, a part of that 120. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul refers to them, uh, James, uh, Jesus' brothers, as, as Christian examples. So they were there, they're Christian examples. And in Galatians 1 and Acts 15, we're told that James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he was in that role for like 20 some years. Now, I just want you to think about that. I know that, that maybe some of you are aware of some of that, but I just want you to kind of think about that, process that a little bit more. Even though James and Jude knew Jesus as like their childhood playmate, the kid that they were, that they were raised with, the kid that they hung out with, even though they were fully devoted to the Jewish religion, they came to believe that their brother was truly the Messiah and that the church was truly the new Israel. The resurrection convinced them that Jesus was the Messiah and the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit falling convinced them that the church was the new Israel. All that to say, if the brothers of Jesus can go from unbelieving skeptics to embracing Jesus as Savior and Lord, then the gospel can transform anyone. Like it doesn't matter if they're the biggest skeptic in the world, it doesn't matter if they just don't buy into this whole Jesus thing and don't think the whole Jesus thing is true, it doesn't matter if they've been raised in a totally, completely different religion with a totally, completely different worldview. The gospel has the power to transform. It can transform you. It can transform members of your family. It can transform your friends. The gospel can transform anyone. Now, James' focus in this book, and it comes up over and over and over again, is that true faith always results in a changed life. True faith always results in a changed life. In other words, the people who Jesus has redeemed, they, they should live as redeemed people. That's really the whole point of the book of James, is the people that Jesus has redeemed should live their lives, and the things that they say and the things that they, they should live their lives as redeemed people. According to James, faith that does not lead to life change is really no faith 
at all. And he hits this theme head on in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, James talks about two characteristics of people who have been redeemed by Jesus. Two characteristics of people who have become followers of Jesus. Two characteristics of people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. And we're just going to unpack those two characteristics today. The first is this. Redeemed people value spiritual riches. People who are redeemed, people who have come into faith in Jesus Christ, they value spiritual riches. Look at what he says in verse 1 and following. Now, brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here, here's a good seat for you right up front, or, or maybe in our context here, here's a good seat for you right in the back where you're not close and the pastor won't spit on you. You're like, but here's a good, here's a good uh, seat for you. But says to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear friends, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Now, James is addressing a question here, and the question is this. What's more important, spiritual riches or financial riches? That's really the question that he's raising. What's more important, spiritual riches or financial riches? And his answer is clear. Spiritual riches are more important than financial riches. And he reinforces that point by asking this rhetorical question. Has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Now, James is speaking from a particular context here of what's going on in the first century church. The reality was that most of the people in the first century church were indeed financially poor. That was just a reality. That most of the people in the first century church financially were not well off. Financially were poor. And what's also true is that in the first century church, most of the persecutors of the church. Most of the people that were putting pressure on the church were people who were financially rich. Now, being financially poor and being financially rich wasn't just about money. It was also about ethnicity. It was about age. It was about gender. It was about ability. It was about those who had power and those who didn't have power. It was about those who had status in the community and those who didn't have status in the community. It was about those who had privilege and those who didn't have privilege. And for the most part, those with power and privilege and money were concerned that this growing group, this ragtag little group of, of Christ followers who were always talking about this new kingdom that's coming into the world, this new kingdom that's breaking into the world, they were concerned that it was going to upset the power structures of the day and cause them to lose their little kingdoms that they had set up 
in this world. Now, James isn't saying that all those who are financially poor are rich in their faith, and he isn't saying all those who are financially rich are poor in their faith. He's just saying, one, that the gospel is for everyone, rich and poor alike, and two, in the church, in contrast to the world, it's not wealth that gives someone standing, it's being rich in faith. Now, the reason that James is addressing this is because apparently there were some congregations in the first century who were gloating over who they had in their church, who had some, again, most of the followers of Jesus were poor, and some of the churches, when they had a person who was not poor who came in, they were gloating over the person who came in. They were basically saying, hey, look who's attending our church. So, so-and-so is attending our church. We have so-and-so who just came and just sat in the front of our church. Like, this is who is attending our church. And in the process, they were discriminated against those who were not as financially well-off. And James says, stop it. Like, that is not right. Now, certainly, what they were dealing with in the first century church can at times maybe be a problem still today, but so can the opposite. Some of you know, I, I grew up in a denomination where they didn't gloat over people who were financially wealthy. They, they gloated over not being financially wealthy. Like that was the context of the church that I grew up in. They didn't gloat over people who were financially wealthy. They gloated over the fact that they, that they weren't financially wealthy. They would gloat over the poor and the middle class and discriminate against the rich. They, they would gloat over the uneducated and be rude to the educated. They would gloat over those who, who gave out of their poverty and, and look down on those who gave generously out of their abundance. They, they wore their financial limitations and their educational limitations as a kind of spiritual badge that they thought somehow made them more spiritual, uh, more spiritually rich than people who had lots of resources and, and lots of education. I think I've told this before that when my brother Gil, who was a pastor and went to seminary and uh, was training to be a pastor and became a pastor and pastored a church in Boston um, and then went to Boston University and he got his PhD and after he got his PhD, he was, he was going out not to teach, not to be a seminary professor. He was going out to be a pastor. He wanted to be a pastor. He just gotten his PhD and he wanted to be a pastor. And there were so many churches. In fact, most of the churches in our denomination would not hire my brother as a pastor because, according to their perspective, he was too educated. The, the, the thought process was this. The more educated you are, the less spiritual you are. And, and we do that with a lot of things. Sometimes the, the, more, the more money you have, the less spiritual you are. The more access to resources you have, the less spiritual. Whatever it is, like fill in the blank. That was like the dynamic in the church that I grew up in. The point that James is making is not that you should discriminate against the rich instead of the poor. He's not saying the poor should get the good seats and the rich should sit on the floor. His point is that no one should sit on the floor. 
No one in the church should be made to feel less than. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your religious background. It doesn't matter your educational background, your accomplishments, where you are in your faith journey, all of that. In the church, no one should be made to feel less than. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone in the church is entrusted with the same responsibilities. And it doesn't mean that everyone can become a leader. It just means that the primary criteria for making those decisions should be about spiritual giftedness and richness of faith and not something else. Second thing is this. James says, redeemed people have visible faith. They have a faith that is visible. Look at verse 14 and following. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds or works in some of the translations? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I, I, I wish you well, <laughs> be well fed, be warm, but does nothing about his physical needs, like what, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, James says, is dead. In this passage, James is talking about people who have all of the right ideas about God, like they've, they've, they've figured out all the right things. They believe all of the right things about God. They've got their theology straight. They, 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 they understand the original Greek. They, they, they know exactly all the things about Scripture, like they've got everything right about God, but their ideas don't get translated into action. He goes on to say in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's, no, that you believe that there's one God. Good, that's great. Even the demons believe that. And they, they shudder. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, sometimes we read that passage, and especially in a church like ours that is always talking about the grace of God and the fact that the grace of God and our salvation is not based on anything that we do. It's based on what Jesus has done for us and just our response to that. We read this passage and we go, how does this, like, how does this match up with everything else that I read in the New Testament about about grace and about faith and not being saved by works. And like, what's, what's James saying? Like, what is the connection? How do I correlate these two things? And the thing to understanding that is that James is using words like faith and works in a very specialized kind of way. And if you don't understand that, it's easy to get the idea that James is saying that somehow we have to earn our salvation or somehow we have to partially earn our salvation, that we do our part, God does his part, and then somehow that earns our salvation. But that's not what James is saying. James is not using the word faith here to talk about the entirety 
of our relationship with God the same way that Paul uses the word faith when he says in Ephesians 2, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, not by anything that you've done. So no one can boast. Like Paul is talking about faith in the sense of the entirety of our relationship with Jesus. That the entirety of our relationship with Jesus, that it's God's grace and our faith response to that, and it's not what we do that brings about redemption and restoration and salvation in our lives. James is using the word faith in a very, very different kind of way. It's a real specific kind of way. James is using the word faith to talk about having the right ideas about God. And he uses the word works to talk about translating those right ideas into action. And when you read these verses using that lens, you get a a much better understanding, a much clearer understanding of what James is actually saying and how important it is to hear what James is saying. Just look at those verses again, kind of through that lens. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have the right ideas about God but has not translated those ideas into action? Can just the right ideas about God save him? And the implied answer there is no. Verse 17, so the right idea about God by itself, if it's not translated into action, is dead. Or verse 18, I, by translating my ideas about God into action, will show you what those ideas are. Or verse 19, again, you believe that there is one God, good, Even the demons believe that. Even the demons have right ideas about who God is, but they shudder. Or verse 24, you see that a person is justified by the translation of right ideas about God into action and not just by those right ideas alone. Or verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so right ideas about God apart from the translation of those ideas into action, is dead. And then James gives three examples in this passage to kind of drive this whole point home of visible faith. And and that faith, like true faith, is always visible faith. The first is in verses 15 and 16 where he says, if someone is in need and all you have is a noble idea... (laughs) about how to meet that need, but you don't actually do something to make that noble idea become a reality that it just does no good. And then the second example is Abraham from the Old Testament. And in verses 21 through 23, James says that Abraham put his right ideas about the trustworthiness of God, about the fact that you can trust God Like you, if you put yourself in the yes position to God, if you are obedient to God, like you can trust God that Abraham put the right ideas about the trustworthiness of God into action by being willing to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. But if you know the story, 
You know it's not the end of the story. You know that God graciously intervened and he spared Isaac because Abraham put his right ideas about being able to trust God into action. That he put his right ideas into, like that's what faith is. It's putting your right ideas about God into action. And the third example he gives is Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute who believed that Israel's God was all-powerful, and, and she put that belief into action by helping Israel to conquer her native land for the sake of Israel's God. And in Hebrews 11, Rahab is, is right there, listed right there along with Abraham as one of the heroes of the faith because she put her right ideas about God into action. This whole section is a reminder that true faith is always visible. That true faith is always this inward commitment to God that gets translated into action. In other words, faith is not just some invisible little thing going on inside of us. That's, that's somehow, like when we read Paul and what he has to say about faith, and we read other places in the Bible and what it says about faith, sometimes we reduce faith to something that the Bible never intended it to be reduced to. We reduce it to this little inside thing going on within us. And scripture is like, no, 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 that's not what faith is. Faith is not just this little inside belief that you have, this right belief about God, that faith is visible, that it's visible in the things that we do, it's visible in the things that we say, that true faith makes itself visible. God wants us to know what is right, and then he wants us to do what is right. God wants us to know Christ as Savior and Lord, and then he wants us to actually live under his lordship. God wants us to think the right way and then do the right thing. What thrills the heart of God <laughs> is not the number of people who show up each week to hear the word of God. Like that's really not what most thrills the heart of God. What most thrills the heart of God is not the number of people that show up each week to hear the word of God. What thrills the heart of God is the number of people who go out each week to live the word of God. Like that's what thrills the heart of God. What thrills the heart of God is not the number of people who hear messages on prayer. It's the number of people who become totally and completely dependent upon God. What thrills the heart of God is not the number of people who hear messages on generosity. What thrills the heart of God is the number of people who actually learn to trust in God's generous provision. What thrills the heart of God is not the number of people who hear messages on forgiveness, what thrills the heart of God is the number of people who seek God's forgiveness and then offer that same forgiveness to others. That's what thrills the heart of God. True faith in Christ transforms us. Like, that's what James is talking about. He, he's really talking about the same thing that Paul is talking about. 
He's saying that true faith, it transforms us from the inside out. That this relationship with God bears itself out in everything that we do and everything that we say. When we genuinely put our trust in God, it just naturally leads us to this life that's characterized by love and compassion and generosity and good deeds. Our actions become a response to the love and the grace that has been poured out on us. Our faith becomes a response to the love and the grace that has been poured out on us. So let me just wrap it up by asking you a few questions. Like, where do you feel like maybe as you do just a little inventory yourself, where do you feel like God is maybe saying, here's where I want you, here's where you need to make your faith visible? Like, here's where I want you to make your faith visible. Where is God telling you that you need to translate your right ideas about God in this particular area, whatever it is, in your relationships, in your decisions, in your behavior, in whatever. Like, where is it that God is saying, I want you to translate, you've got the right ideas. Like, you've got the right ideas about what I want and, and how I want you to live and what's more, most important and what does it mean to live the life that you've been created to live. Like, you've got all the right ideas about that. But God is saying, where, like what area of your life is God is saying, I want you to take these right ideas that you have about God and I want you to, I want you to translate them into action. Where, where, is, where is God saying, I, I want you, what area of your life is God saying, I want you to take that which you believe about me and I want you to align it with actually the way that you live and what you're doing and what you say. Where, where is God saying, I want you to better align that with what you believe? And maybe it has to do with the relationship that God is saying. I want you to translate what you know <laughs> into what you do. Maybe it's a particular relationship. Maybe it has to do with your finances. Maybe it has to do with a certain behavior. Maybe there's something that God has been asking you to do that you've been ignoring. Like God's been calling you to something. He's been, he's been leading you to something. He, he, he's been saying, this is something that I, I want for you in your life. Like what, what has God been, been calling you to or leading you to do that, that up to this point you've not translated into action, that you just ignored or just, or just flat out said no. James says whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever that is, James says say yes. Say yes to whatever it is that you already know about God, but the alignment between that and, 
and how you're living like isn't there, like just say yes. Say yes to translating that into action. Say yes to living that out. Say yes to that calling whatever it is that God is is placing on your heart. Just say yes. And for some of you, it may be just say yes to Jesus for the first time. Like for some of you, it's like this message is about like understanding what faith is because you have put your faith in Jesus and and now it's about us better understanding what does it mean that we've put our faith in Jesus. But maybe for some of you, the yes that God is saying to you today is, is take that step to say yes to faith. You've never put your faith in Jesus. Never put your trust in Jesus. Never really accepted what he did for you on the cross, his forgiveness, his grace, his love, his purpose, his call. Just never have said yes to that. And James is saying, say yes. God, we are so thankful. We're overwhelmed when we, we listen to the words of James and we really understand and get a, and get a clearer picture. We talk, about, we talk about faith all the time. Faith is at the core of everything that we are. But Lord, James just so helps us to understand it in a better way that, that faith is not just this little belief that we have on the inside, this faith is something that gets translated out into action. It, it, it transforms us. It changes the world. It changes our lives. It changes our relationships. It changes our behavior. It changes the way we communicate. It just changes our relationship. It changes everything. And so, Lord, may we make faith visible in our lives. And for those who have never said yet, who have never put their faith in you, I pray that today is the day, in this moment, right now, that they say yes, yes to you as Savior and Lord. Amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.